Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study in Ephesians and we've come to the armor of God. And I don't know how many of you are ready for battle. Because it is a real battle. I was reading this illustration about, uh, and it's a true story from Martin Luther, uh, the reformer Martin Luther. And was talking about his conflict with Satan and it got so real to him that he takes his pot of ink, you know, back in the day with the feather and the ink, he takes his pot of ink that's on his desk and he throws it at the devil. And the ink stains the wall and that stain remained for years and he didn't wipe it off because he wanted to know the reality of the battle that he's having with the enemy. Church, as friends of the Lord, we are enemies of Satan. That's it. The conflict is and cannot, sorry, cannot be avoided. Especially since we are part of God's kingdom. We believe and accept, and I say this again and I repeat myself, but we've got to get it that when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, we are automatically drafted into the kingdom of God, but as soldiers in His kingdom. And we are in enemy territory like we talked about last Sunday. Satan is the ruler, or he's called the prince of the air. He does rule this world, though we know it's for a limited time. Him and his, uh, you want to call the word minions, they do. It's a third of the angels that the Bible talks about that run their wicked schemes throughout peddling, peddling and tricking and deceiving us all. And as long as we live, On this earth till Christ returns, we are always going to be engaged in this battle. There's no way out of this. So turn with me once again to Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 onwards. And we'll be reading uh, from 6 verse 10. And I have the New American today. Look, my bookmark's fallen down. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his strength and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you have been able that you may be able to stand firm, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's the same thing he's repeating himself. Spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. To stand firm. You're going to keep going in that passage in a little while, but... We've talked about this for the past few Sundays. About engaging in a spiritual conflict. And please understand, and I shared this last week or the week before. As a believer, the Spirit dwells within us. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, the devil can't come in and take over. 
what he can do is lay a, what do you say uh, lead us astray but we as believers can never be demon possessed yes he has influence and he's able to deceive us and and stuff like that but he can never possess a real believer because as a believer it's kind of means a believer means the holy spirit dwells within you so you can't have those two and someone had a question about that last week so please understand that part when it's he just said this in 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 uh, in Ephesians itself it's a spirit that dwells within you the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that spirit lives within you Amen. and he's talking about that in context you have that in you but you're still battling an enemy okay so it's not it's not talking about demon possession here a spiritual believer the challenge is how do we battle satan who is working in the world how do we battle Yes we have the world which is uh, you can use the word the fallenness of man filled with the fallenness of man yes we will battle that fallenness all the time till we, till Christ comes again let me put it that way we will battle that fallenness yes we will battle our own imperfections because we are being made perfect we are not perfect but will be made perfect when Christ comes again So we will battle yes the battle within but also the battle on the outside where the devil is active Peter talks about it actively pursuing what like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour And I I don't think we should be ignorant or or uh, naive to the fact that there is an increasing hostility towards christians and the word of god i don't think we can ever be naive to that because what's dominating is a godless mindset what was good is called bad what we've always known as bad now is called good just just a dominating man's uh, mindset right now and yes they can blame us for being old fashioned or whatever it doesn't matter but understand the satan works in the systems of the world through the fallenness of man through you can talk about cults you can talk about false teachers yes he's working actively working to take down the church as well we know that okay we're not naive to that and he does that primarily i always say it's just deception time and time again just deceives and deceives and deceives all the time but please understand this is war this is a battle that's the point we're trying to get at but what is this battle all about the battle is to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh that's the battle that's going on for us to walk in the spirit to live by the spirit and not by the flesh the war is uh, for us is to love and to hold on to what's right what is holy what is just what is good and not run after the other things that deceive us things that seem right and seem so good and feel so good but end up in destruction that's the battle i just kind of summarize it this way god reveals truth satan conceals the truth god tells us the truth satan tells us lies god gives life satan brings death god produces spiritual works satan produces fleshly works god brings along tests to make us mature 
Satan brings along temptation to destroy us. God sets us free. Satan holds us in bondage. And that's how it can go on and on and on that way. There are poles apart. There is no middle ground when it comes to God and the enemy. There is no compromise at all. That is the battle. Yes, we live in this world and please recognize that Satan has power. He does have power. But we can still live a victorious Christian life. Three things I want to share for us to remember as we go. And I'm almost saying the same thing different ways every Sunday. One, you need to remember as you fight this battle that the enemy is already defeated. He is already defeated. He is vanquished. He is defeated. Give you some scriptures to remind you of that. You can write these down. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Hebrews 2 14 tells us that Jesus came so that he might break the power of the devil. Break the power of the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8. It says the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. These two verses basically tell us what? That Jesus... When he died on the cross and rose again, he defeated Satan. Satan is defeated. Now keep that in mind as you fight this battle. He is defeated. And it didn't just start in the New Testament. It started all the way back in Genesis 3, 17. The first promise is what? The seed of the woman will what? Crush the head of the serpent. And then you come to Romans. Romans 16, 20 says what? And the God of peace will soon crush Satan will crush Satan underneath his feet. By the way, that's Sindhu's father's favorite verse, actually. Romans 16, 19. There used to be a song. How many of you remember the song? Be excellent of what is good. Be innocent of evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That's, I remember Sindhu's dad singing that a lot. Sorry, side note. But that's the truth. We've got to remember the devil is defeated already. He says time and time again that Jesus came to break the power of death, break the power of devil. Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So the first thing we need to know, Satan is defeated. That is the truth. But we still got a fight on our hands. We still got a fight on our hand. And the second thing is, not only is the devil defeated, but you and me have got to be aware of his schemes. Yes, he's defeated, but he's still plotting. And we have got to be aware of his schemes and resist them. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. He says, be alert and sober-minded. We touched on it last week. Be alert and sober-minded. We've got to be alert to what? To his schemes of the enemy. James 4, 7, same thing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's the same thing, the same idea. We have got to be aware that even though he is defeated, he's still fighting. He is still fighting. That's why we've got to be alert. That's why we've got to be sober-minded. That is, think clearly. To be sober is to think clearly. Think biblically. Taking every thought captive. 
So the, we battle an enemy who has been defeated, but he's still fighting. We've got to be alert and aware of his schemes. And third thing is we've got to make a conscious effort, discipline ourselves to not give him a foothold. That's what Ephesians 4 talks about. Don't let the devil have an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold. Because all he needs is, like we say, a crack or a chink in that armor, and he will exploit it. He will exploit it. The enemy, like I said, bolt the doors, close the windows, you use what, button down all the hatches, whatever. Don't give him a foothold. The enemy is defeated. And even though he is defeated, please realize this, he still has power. But that power is nothing compared to the greater power that dwells within each one of us. How do we remember all this? And that's why he uses the analogy, hey, put on the armor. All that I've talked about before is basically putting on a a metaphor, if you want to call it that, analogy. Put on the armor of God. It's a mental image, if you want to do it, of a soldier. Put on the armor of God, which reminds us to be battle ready. To be battle ready. And we have, let's read in this, we have the best army ever. We have the best commander-in-chief. We are the most powerful force that will ever walk the earth. But without the armor, you're still open and vulnerable. That's just a fact. And that's why Ephesians 6, he says, stand firm. Right in the beginning, verse 14, it says, stand firm then. This is where we started last week. Stand firm then. With what? With the belt of truth buckled around your waist the first piece of armor that he's talking about as we stand firm is the belt of truth buckled around our our waist now again satan is a liar he is the father of lies and obviously we need to know the truth and hold uncompromisingly to the truth but we talked about it last Uh, uh, last Sunday the word here is aletheia not talking about the truth but about living a life based on the truth it's talking about commitment a total commitment to the war you know this and we talked about it you will never win unless you are totally committed to the war and that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the belt of truth he's talking about a total commitment to the battle Total commitment to the battle. But the first thing the soldier put on was his belt or a sash around his waist. And the purpose was what? To tuck in his tunic. And he was ready because once he has it, the whole idea of gird up the loins that he talks about in the KJV. That's the point. Tie up the loose ends and get ready because you have to move, move fast. You've got to be quick on your feet, but you also have to be ready and be equipped to fight. You can't fight if your robes are flying all over the place. You've got to be ready. You have got to be committed. Are you committed to winning? Are you committed to the battle? The truth he's talking about is about commitment, sincerity when it comes to fighting this battle. He talked about the belt of truth. The second thing we talked about last time was the breastplate of righteousness. Again, the imagery almost all of us have in our mind of these soldiers. If you watch any of these pictures or books or movies, you know the idea of the breastplate of righteousness. It protected the most vital organs in a person's body. 
The breastplate of righteousness, again, it's not talking about the righteousness. Again, Paul is not talking here about the righteousness that comes from Christ. You know, the righteousness that's imputed. We stand in Christ's righteousness. That's not what he's talking about right here. He's more talking about living our lives righteously. Our commitment to winning the battle starts with a commitment to living righteous lives. A commitment to living righteous lives. The idea, a right relationship to God, a right relationship with God, and striving to live holy lives. Again, please don't ever, we're not pushing for perfection, but we are committed to righteous living. We're not saying and forcing, if you don't live a perfect life, you're going to go rotten hell. No, we're not saying that. No one ever says that the Bible doesn't say that. But we hunger and thirst for what? righteousness that's a right relationship with god and a commitment to holy living you know the truth the truth is the conviction that we have we go to battle committed to living that truth and you protect yourself by being committed to holy and righteous living again please please don't Just because I say we're not trying for perfection or we cannot be perfect doesn't mean we don't try being perfect. Here's the difference and I think it comes down and as I was reading Romans 13, 14, when he talks about it, I think when Paul says, this is here at the heart of righteousness, when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, I think that's what he means by righteousness. Put on Christ likeness. Put on Christ-likeness. That should be a commitment to be more like Christ who had this perfect relationship with the Father. And he was perfect in the way he lived his life. That's, I think, that kind of puts it together when he's talking about putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on Christ-likeness. Number three, the first piece of armor was the belt of truth. The second one was the... Uh, the breastplate of righteousness. And now let's look at verse 15. Verse 15, the third one here, it says, With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. If you memorize it in the KJV, again, what? Your feet shard, I think is the word. I never knew what that word meant, but memorize it without knowing it. But the whole idea you get here, you know, your feet fitted. Fitted, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I mean, the idea here is definitely of shoes, what you wear on your feet. And I think every society... um, it understands the importance of having the right shoes on. We understand the importance, you know, especially for a soldier to have his shoes on. I mean, playing soccer, I mean, I remember I paid the price for not having the right cleats on. I paid the price for that. I remember, and I had to go check it up because I remember this clip right in front of you. I don't know if you remember, Brother Dan, uh, Super Bowl 44. The Saints and the Colts were playing. I remember this because this clip's played a number of times. They were, they were right at the end of the first half. It's third and goal. He gives it to the running back, and he tries to cut, and he slips and falls. And as he jogs off, Sean Payton gets onto him. Hey, what are you wearing? And he sh- lifts his shoes, and he says, that figures. And, of course, if it wasn't for the expletives, I'd probably show it on the screen. But go get your cleats on. I mean, he yells at him, rips into him because he doesn't have the right shoes on. 
Now, that's important for a football game. How important is it for our spiritual lives when we're battling a real battle, a real enemy, to have the right shoes on for battle? You have the wrong cleats on in a sports game, it could cost you the Super Bowl. You have the wrong cleats on, the wrong shoes on. When it comes to the battle against the enemy, you're going to lose out on what God intends for you to have. Armies are defeated. If you've studied history, number of them, like 320, we're talking about Alexander going through the mountains, going towards Asia. His army suffered because their feet, because their shoes were too worn out to go through those passes. It's interesting. I found this illustration, a poem. I don't know how many of you have heard it before. Remember this. For want of a nail. It's actually made famous by, quoted by Benjamin Franklin in 1758. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the kingdom was lost. It all started with a nail. Something small, something so insignificant has a big impact. What you wear on your feet mustn't seem like much nothing glamorous but when you have the right shoes to wear you are ready to fight the battle you fit your feet with what is important and the romans like i said the roman soldiers understood what it meant to wear the right feet again please understand the idea he's carrying he's wearing this huge armor carrying weapons carrying a spear whatever it is he needed to have the right shoes so he would not slip and fall he had to stabilize himself again the whole point here points to what stand firm that's the key phrase right there you have to have the right shoes on if you want to stand firm otherwise you're going to slip and fall slipping is not good if you're going to fight hand-to-hand combat you may be the best person the best hand-to-hand combatant there is but if you don't have the right shoes on there's no point you're going to slip and fall you got to have the right shoes on and again the roman soldiers they were known for making these huge i mean they take these long treks into enemy territory they were known for these long drives that they would make now they had to have good shoes on as they went over all this hard terrain He understands that. Paul understands that. The Romans understood that. He had to have that ready because, again, you needed to have the right grip so you won't slip. You had to have the right balance and shoes were vital. What it looked like back in the day was a really hard piece of leather and then the straps were holding it together. But very often, very often, they used to drive nails from the top down so that they acted as spikes as they walked. Or studs, or cleats, whatever you want to call it that. But they did that from time and time again, because as they walked uphill or downhill, or even when they were fighting, they needed a firm footing. And that was only possible when they had their shoes right. The feet had to be fitted right with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Amen. The idea here is being ready, may, being equipped. The feet are being equipped To stand firm. To stand firm. I know uh, some commentators and preachers have 
have talked about uh, the readiness of the gospel of peace and used this as an illustration to, you know, for our symbol for taking the gospel of peace to different places. Yeah, but and where did they get that idea from that whole verse in Isaiah, you know? Blessed are the one, what, the feet who bring good news. I think that's the idea that they get that, uh, that understanding from. But I really don't, I really don't think this is what Paul's talking about. It's not the same thing. First of all, there's not talking about evangelism. He's talking about a fight right here. He's not really talking about evangelism here. And he's talking about fighting something and standing firm about something. And so I think it's just a little different. Again, I'm not going to criticize or anything of that sort. But Paul's not talking about going anywhere. He's talking about standing firm. And you have to have the right shoes to stand firm in your battle against the enemy. Again, please remember, we talked about it last Sunday. We have taken ground in enemy territory. Now the enemy is coming against us. And we have got to stand strong. And we dig in because now we have the right shoes on. We're not going to slip. We're not going to slide. And what's the shoes all about? The gospel of peace. Our firm footing is the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? It's the gospel that we have peace with God. There is no condemnation. There is nothing. We have peace with God. The reason we can stand up, take a stand, not slip, not slide, in spite of all our imperfections, in spite of all our sins, is because we have peace with God. We are not the enemy anymore. We are friends of God. That peace keeps, because we have peace with God, we dig in against the enemy. That's the gospel of peace he's talking about. It's the good news that we have peace with God. God is on our side. That's the good news. God is on our side. He's not going to let us slip. He's not going to let us stumble. As long as our feet are planted on the rock. Same analogy. Same understanding. As I was studying for this, I found a very interesting one commentator actually just alluded to the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter. You know, when he swings his sword and cuts off that guy's ear. Side note, by the way, do you think he was aiming for his ear? (laughs) No. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't that good. He was a fisherman. He didn't swing... To cut his ear off. No, he was swinging for one reason alone. And if Jesus hadn't stopped him, he would have kept going. Sorry, that's just a side note. Somehow we think he was really precise at just cutting off his ear. No, he wasn't. He was swinging. There's no doubt. He didn't. I don't doubt he, 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 was, he was going for it. You know, right there. Anyway. But what got into Peter? Peter's normally this coward normally, right? What got into him? You got to think what happened. Jesus was standing right by him. And what did Jesus just do? A whole group of people fell flat on their behinds when he revealed himself to them as, hey, I'm Jesus. Why do you think Peter got so bold? Because he says, hey, he's on my side. He just said something. All these people are going to fall down. Guys, let's go. That's all he was doing. Why did he get so bold? Because he realized who was standing right beside him and the power that was right beside him. I don't think Peter would have swung his... He would have turned and run. 
if that didn't happen. But the power came from the fact that God or Jesus was right by his side. Now he uses the same analogy when he talks about having peace with God. Is the fact that God is on our side. And now we take a stand with boldness, with confidence. In spite of how many the enemy are. How numerous the enemy are. Because God is for us. Now stand firm in him. Because we have peace with God. Peace with God. I just always laughed about it when I thought about Peter right there. Man, he's so strong, so bold. He knew who was right beside him. He would never have done it in his own strength. God is for us. Romans 8, what does it say? Who can be against us? We have peace with God. Now we know that nothing can separate us from his love. No charge can be brought up against us in all these things. We know that we are what? More than conquerors through him who loves us. That's the gospel of peace. That's what keeps us firmly rooted. Those are the shoes we use to dig in. God is on our side. We have peace with God. He is on our side. I know who loves me, who has called me, who has saved me, who is on my side, church. Therefore, I don't fear the enemy or his schemes because my confidence isn't in my own ability. My confidence is in a God who holds me in his hand. That is peace with God. Peace with God. God, I know He gives me the strength. I know in my weakness, His strength is made perfect. I know I will stand because I am at peace with God. The gospel of peace. The gospel. Our shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. And think about it. His love for us is so amazing. While we were still his enemies, he loved us. If he did so much for us, why will he allow us to stumble and fall? All we got to do is hold on. Hold on to him. Stand firm. The gospel of peace. Peace. Peace with God. God is on our side. And when God is on our side... All his power that like on Peter, that same power is with us too, in us too. Don't get me wrong, church. Yes, again, we carry the gospel of peace into the world. I'm not saying we don't do that at all. But we stand firm, take our stand because we are secure in God because we have peace with him. Don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. When you slip or when you make a mistake and whatever, it doesn't matter. We have peace with God. When we trust in Him, you're not going to stumble and fall, church. We have peace with God because we know where the power is. It's an all-sufficient power that lives within us. That brings me to the fourth part of the armor, the shield of faith. Man, I don't know how far I'm going to get today, but the shield of faith. Again, another picture, another 
imagery that I think we all can uh, are familiar with if you've been enough, uh, watched enough movies or read enough books, whatever. Verse 16, talked about the shoes, now the feet that are fitted, talking about shoes, and then verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith. Again, the imagery is pretty pretty clear here. Now you got to understand the not just the Romans, the Greeks, everybody, there were different kinds of shields that were used back then for warfare. You know, different different kinds of shields used for different parts of the battle at different times, even within the same army. There were different kinds of shields. You know, you had the small shields, especially meant for hand-to-hand combat. You had the small shields, normally really light, but the whole purpose was it's strapped to your arm and you deflect in a hand-to-hand combat. You deflect that. But that's not the word being used here. The word here in, in the Greek is thurion, which talks about this big square, not square, rectangular shield. Probably four to five feet tall and two to two and a half feet wide. The whole purpose. It was like a door, basically. You put that in front of you and then you hide your whole self behind it. That's the idea that he's talking about right here. That's the word he uses here. And so very often they'd use that. And we know if you've seen, again, these pictures, that was right in front of the army. Not everybody carried those. The people right in front, you'd have row after row of these people. You had a number of rows with these huge shields. The whole purpose was what? You put that down and then you hide behind it because then the enemy can't attack. And so you had rows of that and then behind that would be your archers and they would just shoot those things. As you protect them, the people protecting it, and you'd shoot those arrows and then till you got to a point. And then once you were... Close enough, they'd throw those shields down and then they'd, I mean, those shields down and take up the smaller shields when they were fighting hand to hand. Okay, because you're not going to use this huge shield if someone's coming to fight with you hand to hand combat. Okay, but that's the idea. You get the idea again. I don't, this imagery is, is familiar to us. But the idea here is what? Your whole body is protected behind this shield. Your whole body is protected behind the shield. In addition to this, again, it doesn't mean this is more important than the rest of them. No, not at all. In addition to this, it simply means after all this, you still, you have the belt on, you know, put up the, pull up all your loose ends. You have the breastplate on that protects your vital organs. Now you've got the shoes that are giving you good grip, helping you stand. And now you have to have the shield. This is like double protection. You already have, I mean, we're going to talk about it, the helmet of salvation. So you have the helmet already, you have the breastplate already, and now this is kind of like a second layer of defense, right? You have the shield, double protection, if you want to call it that. But here's what we got to notice, and if you know all six of them, three of them are always on. Now, please remember, back in that day, they didn't fight 24-7 the whole time round. No, there were periods where there would be, a, if you want to call it, a lull in the battle, there was rest. But when the soldier rested, okay, he still had his breastplate on. He still had his shoes on. He still had his belt on. But he would lay aside his helmet, put, his, put down his shield, or even put down his sword for little. So that was part of the battle. So there were three things that were always on him. Because when the alarm sounded, he just got up, put his helmet on, grabbed the shield, grabbed the sword, and was ready. He was still ready. Okay, and so there is this kind of distinction that there is. But the idea still stays the same. The shield of faith. The shield of faith. And what's this faith about? Why is it necessary to extinguish all the flaming arrows 
of the evil one. I think the other translation, the fiery darts of the enemy. The fiery darts of the enemy. Again, the imagery is to break this. A lot of the enemies would dip their arrows in tar or whatever, set it on fire and shoot it across. And then you have the shield that blocks that flaming arrow from getting onto your army or whatever. So the imagery, again, is uh, pretty pretty uh, plain and straightforward. But what are these flaming arrows? Again, many commentators have suggested different things and I'm not saying one is wrong or anything of that sort. But for me, I view, one of the things I view, the biggest arrow, if you want to call it that, is deception. It's deception. Especially, and I'll put it this way more precisely, it's the deception in spreading discontentment. It's the deception in spreading discontentment. You see this right from the beginning. The sense of dissatisfaction or discontentment. Think about it all the way back when Satan comes to Eve and tells him what? You know, yes, you have this fruit. You know, guess what, Eve? God is not what you think he is. You know, you think he's so wonderful, he's so good. But the truth is this. There's this one tree which has really good fruit. He doesn't want you to eat from that. You know, if he was really good, why would he stop you from eating from that? It's just a deception. Why? It creates what? A dissatisfaction, a discontentment. You had 99 other trees to eat from, a million other trees to eat from. No, but what does he do? Deceives you into thinking and doubting that dissatisfaction he creates. That you have a right to that tree. How dare God? God is so mean. That fruit looks so good. I think that's the main arrow that he uses. To get us. God doesn't want you to be happy. You've heard that one before? Oh that one. If you have that it will make you really happy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. He has all these restrictions on there. And I think particularly. And I say this carefully. The agendas that are being pushed nowadays. That you see all over the place. Essentially says the same thing. I've met people who said, I grew up in a Christian, a strict Christian household, but you know, now that I left, now I'm enjoying my life so much. That is just deception right there. Because I want to do what I want to do, and the Bible says, no, don't do that, but that's just God being mean. He doesn't want me to do that. He doesn't want me to be happy. Why would a good God restrict you from doing something and feeling good about yourself? That's not what it's about at all. Those fiery darts, like I said, it's deception, discontentment that he stirs in many people's heart. And ultimately, what does that do? He makes you doubt that God has your best in his mind. That's what it is. God knew what was best for Adam and Eve and told them not to do it. But the devil comes and deceives them saying, hey... He makes you doubt that God has what's best in mind for you. That's essentially what he does. That's why you need faith. What does faith do? Extinguishes doubt. Does God care? Does God really love you? Does God really want you to be happy? Does God know what is best for you? He creates the doubt. That's why the faith, the shield of faith is required. Because faith drives away doubt extinguishes doubt. The number of people that I've talked to, especially recently, I'm just so much happier right now that I've left the church. 
you think you know what's happening and what's best for you and it makes you feel good, that's why you're so much happier right now. God knows what's at the end of the story. The deception of the enemy, the deception that you know, this is what it's all about. The deception that you got to love yourself, that you have a right to be happy, that you know what's best for you. It's that deception that that's why we need faith. To trust God. That God loves me more than I can ever love myself. That God and serving him will truly make me happier than I'll ever know before. And that God knows what's best for me even though it might not seem that way right now. That's why we need faith. That's what faith is about. When we don't see it, we still trust God. Amen. Trust God. It takes faith to remind you <coughs> that He is good. Yeah. I'll end with this real quick, but I want to go back to the temptations of that Jesus faced. Because it's the same thing. I mean, the devil comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. We know the context. Jesus has been led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. And then, of course, what does the devil say? If you're the Son of God, I'm going to paraphrase this a little. If you're the Son of God, what? Command these stones that they will become bread. And what kind of deal is this? Just think about what he's trying to get into get to try to tell Jesus you are the son of God you're hungry you are the son of God that's ridiculous that your father would lead you to a place in a wilderness where you are hungry you really think your father wants what's good for you why would he keep you hungry he's trying to deceive him trying to get in there you know the lack of anything he's just saying God is withholding what's good for you you are the son of God just do it and that's why he says he says well I mean, think about it. He's always like, why would God want you to be hungry? Just turn this into bread. Of course, we know it's written what? Man will not live by bread alone. And then, of course, what he does after that is he makes him doubt. He's essentially trying to make him doubt God. Then he takes him, of course, to Jerusalem and then takes him to the top of the temple. And it's probably, uh, historically, 300 to 400 foot drop from there. And what does he say? Hey, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down and let the angels kind of soften the blow when you land, right? That's basically what he's saying. But think about what he's really getting at right there. If you are the son of God, you are Israel's Messiah, what are you doing in the wilderness where nobody even recognizes you? Why don't you go to the temple and jump off from there and then the miracle when the angels come and when they see it, they will all know that you are the Messiah right there. That's what he's trying to get him to do. If God wants you, if you really are the Messiah, if God wants you to be the savior of Israel, why is he hiding you somewhere in the corner? Do it right now. Prove it to everybody that you are God, you know, and then everybody will believe you are the Messiah. Getting at the same kind of same kind of thing. You are the rightful Messiah. Take what's rightfully yours right now. Why go with God's plan in the wilderness somewhere? Take what's rightfully yours. And of course, what does he say? You you don't put the Lord God to the test. 
I'm not going to do something foolish just to test God when I trust his plan that he will prove that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God after I die and he raises me from the dead. I'll trust him and his timing. Why should I try something on my own and test God right now? It's just the deception that he's trying to get him to go. I'm going to trust God. He'll feed me when he's time to feed me. He'll proclaim that I am the Messiah when it's his time. That's all he's trying to say. And then, of course, the devil takes him to the high mountain. You know, starts with simple things, food, you know, and then convince him to, you know, show the Jews that you are the Messiah. And then, of course, he takes him to the mountaintop and he says, hey, the whole world is in front of you. All you got to do is what? Bow down and worship me. If God really wanted you to be the son of, if you really are the son of God and God wanted you to be the ruler of this world, this is not what he's going to do. This is not the way he wants to do it. I have the right way to do it. All you got to do is worship me and I'll give you the power you want. Because I have a right. That's who I am. I am the son of God. You are the son of God. This is rightfully yours. Now do it. Like hi, I am promising you so much. That's the deception. And he's like, hey, get away from here. I'm going to wait and trust God. His timing. He's going to exalt me above every other name. And that at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But it's in his timing, done in his way. That's the truth. All the devil tried to do is deceive him and to doubt God's goodness, God's plan, God's love for him, God's compassion on him. Why does he want to keep you hungry? Now the devil comes and does the same exact thing right now. Makes us doubt the goodness of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God, his mercy and his grace every single day. Trying to show you that, hey, you have a right to live your life in happiness and you have a right to have all that they have. He tries to drive this envy and jealousy and discontentment in your heart but all you got to do is put on that shield or hold up that shield of faith that drives away that doubt and when you hold that faith you're telling the enemy I trust God and not you that's what it's about the shield of faith the shield of faith don't allow him to deceive you like I said Time and time again, he will say, it's the same thing. You're going through a hard time, he'll come up to you. Do you really think God cares about you? You're going through a situation in your life, you really think God is good? Why would he allow that to happen? He's going to do that. That's his plan right from the beginning. He did that to Adam and Eve. He did that to Jesus. You think he's not going to do that to you? That's why we have the shoes of peace. That we have peace with God and we have the shield of faith that helps us fight the doubt and the deception that he throws at us. Put on the shoes of peace and hold on to that shield of faith. You want to live a triumphant Christian life, church. Put on that belt. That belt is all about a total commitment to the battle. A total commitment to the battle. 
do you want to or really want to win? Again, this is not about salvation. We talked about this earlier. This is not about salvation at all. What it's talking about is the way you live your life, whether you live your life victoriously, or you're going to live your life in desperation, in disappointment, in discouragement, with the lack of joy, with living your life, settling for mediocrity right there. Are you going to live your life victoriously? If you are committed to winning and wanting to live like that, put on that belt of truth. Put on that belt of truth. Are you content with a half-hearted commitment to the word? Half-hearted commitment to prayer, to fellowship? Or are you totally committed to winning? Totally committed to winning. Again, please remember, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, a commitment to righteousness. Every single day, you put on that breastplate, a right relationship with God, and a pursuit of holiness. Church, again, breastplate of righteousness. You have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes fitted, your feet fitted with the shoes of peace. Let that settle, let that ground you that you are not an enemy anymore. God is with you. You have, we have peace with God. That's the good news. No condemnation anymore. Nothing can separate us from His love. And because we love Him, we are more than conquerors. And then hold up that shield of faith. When he comes in with his doubts, his flaming arrows of deception and doubt, dig into that faith. Hold up that shield of faith. It's the confidence we have, church. The confidence we have. Bow your heads with me at this time. Are you committed to winning, church? Are you committed to this fight? It's a choice you make. I mean, you can settle for living a life down there if, I want to call, if you want to call it that. Unhappy, you know, just a miserable person to hang around with. Always disappointed, always discouraged. You know, just life is a woe is me the whole time that's not the life that jesus wants you to live he wants you to live a victorious life a triumphant life but that begins with realizing that you are in a battle and you have to be committed to that battle do you want to win if you want to win put on the armor of god that belt That's what it talks about, a readiness, a commitment, a sincerity to the battle. Tuck in those loose ends. Daily, that breastplate of righteousness. Like he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Again, don't ever make that excuse. Oh, I'm never going to be perfect. You can settle for that. But you can hunger and thirst for it. It starts with a relationship with God and pursuing holiness. Now, you're going to be bold like Peter. When he comes against you, when those waves come crashing, you've got the right shoes on because you have peace with God and that's going to give you firm footing against the enemy. Confidence, strength. There's no slipping because you are at peace with God. And then hold on shield of faith that faith that fights doubt that faith that fights the arrows the enemy sends flying at us the deception where he makes us question the goodness of God and the love of God and everything else hold up that shield of faith the grass is not greener on the other side God is not withholding things from you because he doesn't want you to be happy he knows what's best for you now are you going to stand in faith and trust him for that even though it doesn't make sense right now hold on to that shield of faith I'll stand to our feet and worship God for me.
thank you, Lord, once again, oh God. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, God, that we are, oh God, in you, Lord, that you have called us, oh God. You have chosen us, Lord. And we come, oh God, now once again, renewing our commitment to this battle, oh God. Lord, we know we fight a powerful enemy, but that power is limited because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's our confidence, church. We have peace with God. And when the enemy comes in with doubt, when he comes in with fear, we respond in faith. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Amen, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Remember to connect with Leanne if you have questions about uh, next Sunday. We're believing for a good time together, giving thanks to God. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.